while social analysis must always be part of curriculum development and teaching, education policy and practice needs to be protected against the dangers of fads, obsessions, and moral panics as we learn to embrace the void. If anyone was ever going to make it back from the void, I suppose it was going to be you. Oh, well, you know, one man's void is another man's piece of cake. What about the reality we left behind? What about the reality where Hitler cured cancer, Morty? The answer is don't think about it. People assume that time is a strict progression of cause to effect, but actually, from a non-linear, non-subjective viewpoint, it's more like a big ball of wibbly-wobbly, timey-wimey stuff. This podcast contains foul language, dark invocations, and treating women like their people. Welcome, friends, to episode 220 of Embrace the Void, where the new moral panic at the disco album just dropped. I am your host, Aaron. And this week, we are discussing the ever-present problem of misinformation. So, let's speak our truth. Life ends in death, which we, as a species, are cursed with knowing, resulting in... Something. My returning guest this week is Rod Graham, a YouTuber and writer on Substack. Rod, would you like to once again say hi to the void? Hello, everyone. I'm glad to be back again. I enjoyed it the first time, and I hope I enjoy it equally as much this time. (laughs) I hope so, too. We've got (laughs) you on for the next uh, level of the enlightening round, so that'll be fun. Now, the last time I had you on, which I I looked, I think, probably almost a year and a half ago now, Mm -hmm. um, had you on to discuss Robin D'Angelo's paper about white fragility, the one that the book is based on. And sort of looking back, I feel like our conversation feels fairly quaint. Um, folks should go back and, and listen again for a laugh. But before we get to sort of our main topic here, or like it's related to our main topic, I'm curious, do you feel like your perspective on the culture wars has evolved at all in the past year and a half since that conversation? You know, I saw you post that on Twitter, and I was tempted to go back and Mm-hmm. listen to to figure out what is so quaint about it <laughs> I, mean, I I don't know I mean I, I don't know what what I said actually I cannot remember but I mean I, I guess it has evolved a little bit I mean I, I used to be the kind of person who would want to explain things I, I had this idea that if I would just just explain then mm-hmm. then people would understand what was going on but then I realized no there's it's not really about what's what's actually happening it's more there's some motivate some political motivations going on there Mm-hmm. And uh, me explaining white fragility doesn't matter really that much. Yeah, well, that is very much related to what we're going to be talking about today, this sort of question of engagement um, and explaining. So I think that's it's interesting to hear that you feel like you've personally shifted. And this is like an issue that I think, you know, you see a lot of discourse around on the I mean, like on both sides, but on the left in particular around things like pushing back on the information deficit model as a solution where it's just like this sort of somewhat naive idea that just providing information is the corrective to misinformation or something like that. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So you feel like you've become more sympathetic to that concern in the past uh, year and a half. Has anything sort of driven that? Do you feel like? Yeah, well, I'm more sympathetic. You could even say cynical. I, I just don't, I just don't think that uh, that kind of those kinds of discussions lead to any type of, uh, to people changing their minds. Mm-hmm. I, I just don't. I, I think it's because, you know, people, first off, or maybe you're not, but but there's like this sense that if you can provide more information, people will change. But there are two problems with that. One, I think, is that anything that someone from the other side, if you will, says will be swamped by the next 50 things that people hear from their side because we're in these information bubbles. So, so having that you know one-off debate where you hear what the other person is saying means nothing because then you'll hear uh, you'll go back into your bubble and hear fifty things against that. And mm-hmm. then second, I, I I think that we're motivated creatures, and if you feel that a certain idea is damaging to you or yours or 
you know, a particular, your particular ideology that you've taken, then it is very hard for someone to present something to you uh, and you accept it. You know, you're just not going to uh, take that discon- disconfirming evidence in. So, mm-hmm. yeah. Yeah. All right. So that that is, I think, very much at the heart of what I want to talk about today. Uh, before we get to it, though, I really, I, you know, more and more I find it's important to like, get people talking a little bit about their own personal identity and sort of community commitments. Because as you say, our community commitments do impact us, right? As you're just describing, they kind of blind and bind us in various kinds of ways. So I'm curious for you, where do you feel like your sort of biases and blind spots in that way are at this point? Do you identify as woke, for example, or do you have other terms that you feel more attuned to? And what do you feel like those mean in terms of your um, in-group, out-group biases? Well, I guess I'm, first of all, I like bind, a uh, bias and, and bind us. I like alliteration. So I, it sounds you. like a I good, also, yeah. I'm also pro-alliteration. <laughs> People are anti-alliteration. Yeah. I think that they are cowards and should not use words. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so yeah, I guess whatever woke means to uh, people who are anti-woke or conservative, for me, it just means that you are uh, attuned to social justice issues and you're willing to maybe do something about it. So if that's what woke means to me, then sure, uh, I am very much woke. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But, but politically, I'm a, I'm a progressive, e- economically mm-hmm. uh, progressive, maybe socially conservative in some ways, but I'm, you know, I'll, I'll always vote, at least for the foreseeable future, for whatever Democratic candidate there is out there. Interesting. Do you want to share it all? Why? In what ways do you sort of feel more emotion- or socially conservative? Well, so I'm culturally Christian, and uh-huh. uh, even though I don't practice, uh, I, I see the value in religious institutions. So I would support a candidate who would do these sort of um, faith-based initiatives. I think that would be good, but that's a very conservative uh, idea. I'm also one who believes in, um, but this is me as a sociologist as well, understanding the importance of social cohesion. So I'm mm-hmm. also someone who would be fine with less uh, immigration and make it more controlled. Uh, I, I think uh, that communities need to 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 sort of build connections, uh, or individuals in communities need to build connections. And I think there's a positive benefit to that. And that's, that's also a conservative idea, I believe. So those are just some ways. There are more, but I, I don't want to. I don't want to uh, piss off your guests. So <laughs> no, it's okay to piss off my guests. And I, we will <laughs> we'll get to one of these topics later because uh, there was one that I think came up in context that I think will be related to our discussion but let's let's get to this heart of the matter here then because i think that's really helpful just to give people a sense of where you're coming from so you recently wrote a post on substack which was called how moral panics help maintain immoral practices and there you argued that the gop uses moral panics as a political strategy i think you and i are pretty much 100 percent in agreement on that part of things um and that we are sort of culturally in the grip of kind of a rolling right-wing moral panic that keeps getting rebranded with different terms. Mm-hmm. Do you want to say a bit about how you sort of understand that moral panic and its role in right-wing politics? Like what 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 makes it a functional mechanism for maintaining immoral practices? Well, it it uh, it taps into people's emotions. So you generate... So I, I guess we all know what a moral panic is, even though we didn't kind of define it. You know, it's this exaggerated perception of something. Uh, it's not really rooted in reality. And so mm-hmm. uh, I think... Well, I there think, may be some examples, right? It's it's an overstatement oh, yeah. of the reality of the situation. Just so people get confused, I think, about that. So you're right. We should clarify. Moral panics are an overstatement of, of a phenomenon that may or may not exist, but definitely doesn't exist at the quantity that the panic suggests. That's right. That's right. And so it's good for for and and also in uh, including in that is not just the the disproportionate uh, or, or the sense that it's it's more than it really is you know but it's also that you you link a group to that panic mm. so so some group is doing the bad thing a lot mm-hmm. all right and so then when you have it's that empiricism element that I think you, is very important you're right yeah well it, it's also that you're so I'm, I'm coming from a, a sociological or criminological uh, viewpoint. And so, you know, we, we have this theoretical tradition of, of uh, labeling theory, where mm-hmm. this idea is that deviance is not necessarily what you do. It's, it's 
that you label someone as deviant and you have the power or the resources to make that label stick. And so you've got that panic, uh, mm-hmm. this exaggerated understanding, but you also got a group that you can label as immoral. Mm-hmm. And so once you do that, then you know, you've got an enemy that you can then rile up voters uh, to vote against. And so, you know, uh, you know, the the pink haired feminazi is like mm-hmm. would be the bad thing, you know, the group and then they're doing something immoral or, you know, progressive professors or something like that. So so mm-hmm. you got that going on. That that piece that you're talking about, um, I was making the argument that these moral panics allow people to continue doing things that they want to do and they know that they might be a little bad. Mm-hmm. So so I don't have that piece in front of me, but the example that I that I gave was about, you know, we, we've got this push now to accept transgender people more and give them full rights, trans trans people in general, transgender, transsexual. And mm-hmm. so um, uh, conservatives probably don't like that, but, but you can't, you don't want to come out and, and say that. Right. So you need some kind of mechanism to push back against that without saying, you know, we don't like trans people. And so you got this, uh, there have been a few instances, I believe, where a trans woman, mm-hmm. so transitioning from a man to a woman, um, was sexually aggressive uh, in a woman's bathroom or something like that. Okay, so this is a very idiosyncratic event. But now conservatives can say, how? okay, here, we got this thing here. This is really bad. We need to do something about this because transsexuals and I've, and I saw that on Fox News I was doing the research for that piece and and they were talking about you know trans women mm-hmm. raping people in prison and all this kind of stuff and and you know that it's mm-hmm. these idiosyncratic things but it allows then people to push back against this general push towards uh accepting trans people it's mm-hmm. a way of maintaining those immoral immoral practices yeah i absolutely agree and this was you know an argument that uh, I've raised in the Skeptic Mag, where I've talked about the history of the Southern strategy and the way that I think these moral panics are very much attached mm-hmm. to that. And I think, you know, when I talked to Kathy Young on this show, she's someone who I think has been sort of directly, you know, one of the main people involved, not main, but like a person involved in those transgender moral panics and promoting those kinds of um, extreme stories. And I think it seems to me that pushing back on that kind of stuff is important. It's part of the program, part of the project, I think, of trying to correct for these moral panics, along with exposing exactly what you're describing, which is the way in which they function as a constant rebranding tool to keep um, these kind of conservative biases um, within the sort of culturally accepted space or whatever. Um, Mm -hmm. Now, Another part of the article, though, included a criticism of how some progressives engage with moral panics, um, a criticism that you've leveled, I think, at me a couple of times as well, um, which is how we, we got into this particular conversation. Can you explain sort of your criticism of progressive engagement here? I label the criticism at you. I think you have at least at one point suggested that I am amongst the pe- progressives who are, and I, I actually have the quote if you want, so if you don't have it. Oh, God. It. <laughs> no, uh, okay, I, I, I believe you. <laughs> no, no. I mean, here's, here's the quote from the article, right? I, I, don't, I didn't pull up some Twitter fight or something. Oh, I see, I see, but, uh, I see. In the article, you said, um, my concern is that progressives legitimate these moral panics by participating in the discourse. By generating an argument against these moral panics, we operate on the battlefield conservatives choose. If these panics are at best distortions and worst lies, uh, maybe the most effective strategy is to double down on your own more truthful narrative. Um, so can you help me sort of better understand what what the criticism is you're, you're leveling and, and like who, who are some like paragon examples, if not me, of people who you feel like <laughs> are doing this wrong? So I can understand the concern, right? The risk here. Well, okay. Um... You appeared, I believe, uh, with uh, uh-huh. our friend Sam Hoadley Brill and some others on a um, a recent debate. It was uh, mm-hmm. about CRT, mm-hmm. and um, I didn't I didn't watch that debate. I'm so sorry, Aaron. I would have loved to watch it, but I, I didn't I didn't watch it. I didn't <laughs> watch that debate. But, 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 but I saw I saw the the comments on on Twitter, and I, obviously it was uh, well received. Right? But um, I just wonder if during that conversation, were you spending the entire time talking about whether or not CRT is in schools or not. And I mean, once you take that view, once you start from that perception, then, well, you already 
communicating on the ground that has been set by anti-CRT people. Mm-hmm. And I understand that you have to communicate within that, with that in some way. I mean, you have to meet people in the middle, I guess. But I mean, I, I think it would be better to just present a different narrative that they then have to respond to. So for example, I, I wrote this, uh, this piece recently about CRT is in schools. So, right. so this is so this is me trying to uh, practice what I preach, I guess. So I wrote this this piece called uh, about CRT being in schools, and it's and it is it's culturally responsive teaching, and there's sure. a whole tradition of of yeah uh, trying to incorporate the cultural backgrounds. I would prefer taking that approach instead of spending the entire time showing how conservatives are wrong about CRT being in schools or, or something, or CRT light now, as John McWhorter calls it. That, that's the approach that I would prefer to take. So, yeah. Okay, so I guess I'm, I'm a little confused because there's a, there's a specific criticism there about responses to CRT, which I agree with, but it seems like it's being blended into a broader criticism about engagement, participation in the discourse that I don't feel like I understand. I don't understand the distinction between the two approaches. So on the specific CRT thing, I do think it's a mistake that people keep trying to say that CRT is not part of educational pedagogy because it absolutely uh, is. I think it's an earnest mistake. I think most people just don't know. They just, they Google it and see that it's a legal theory and assume that the Republicans are making something up again because of their long history of making things up. Um, So I do think people need to change their talking point there, but that's not an argument for not engaging with the moral panic. It seems like you're making a broader claim that moral panics are misinformation and any time spent arguing with misinformation is really just feeding the misinformation loop rather than breaking it. Is that is that accurate? Yeah, I, I think we need to create our, our own narratives and Put them in the space. So there's one kind of conversation where you're you're spending the entire time talking about what anti-CRTers or or whatever it is. Uh, you could you could spend the entire time talking about the moral panic and saying, well, you know, this is not right. This is this is inc- inaccurate. On and on and on. Or you can say, well, um, here is another way of understanding this particular phenomenon, and this is how we should talk about it. Now you. It, you know, deal with it on on my terms. So I I was in a conversation a year ago. It was, in, it was incredibly frustrating once it was over. Um, the YouTuber is named Desiree, and she was very nice and, and very respectful. It was a good conversation. But the entire time I spent somehow just answering questions about about CRT and 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 how bad it was or how or how it was distorting uh and and this was about this is in this case it was about critical theory actually in mm-hmm. education mm-hmm. higher education so it wasn't about schools per se at that time this was pre rufo I, I guess but I, I was spending all the time you know just defending or you know parrying these thrusts mm-hmm. and um you know once it was over i felt very dissatisfied because the audience would leave thinking that well this guy there is something there but but this guy is just is just defending uh you know pushing back against what we already know and i should have spent that time focusing more on maybe the positives of critical theory or how critical theory is contextualized within um the academic discourse in general i don't think i did okay. that enough Okay, so this is starting to help me a little bit because mm-hmm. as I was sort of under, trying to understand your your criticism, I was at first understanding it as being in the category of what I think of as like engagement arguments. These arguments about what level um, of engagement or what kind, I mean, I guess it is an engagement argument in the sense of you're, you're, you're in the kind category, right? You're, so your view isn't, for example, I shouldn't debate people about CRT, like full stop, it sounds like. What yours seem to be saying is, I'm, I should debate people about CRT, but when I'm debating them, I shouldn't just try to, you know, fact check all of their claims. I should also present an alternative, coherent narrative or something like that. Yeah, that's it. You okay. said it much more succinctly than I just did. But yeah, that, that that's it. Okay. I'm I'm sympathetic to that in the sense of it as a technique. Um, so, so, for example, like, yeah, I guess I just... Um, 
Okay, so uh, that's interesting because I was a little confused about where you were going with some of this. Because, for example, I know that you're going to be yourself participating no, in this right. debate mm-hmm. right next month. Um, so it isn't. So, so I guess I, I was confused because I think you see a lot of, especially on the left, this kind of approach of. You know, there are like two kinds of participants in the culture war, right? There's people who at least to some extent or another talk to outgroup members, engage with outgroup members. And then there are some folks who are like, you shouldn't bother with that. You should just talk to in-group members, right? You should just preach to the choir in constructive kinds of ways. Um, And like, I think, you know, I think you can make some sort of scratch, right? Some culture war capital by taking one of those roles and basically criticizing the other one for not being good right for for being not part of the system uh it seems to me that like both things are necessary and that really we just have to figure out how to do both of them well do you sort of agree on that front uh, sure yeah it's important to to talk to people who agree with you and also talk to people who who don't mm-hmm. i'm actually for uh so yeah, I, I will be participating in this thing, and I hope it goes well. I don't, I, I don't know how I will comport myself <laughs> once the uh, thing starts, but uh, um, because you and Sam did it, I assume that it's it's a it's a good thing. And I'll probably watch your your. It's uh, not a good basis for any sort of. That's not. <laughs> not do what you just said. Um, well, but um, I I'm actually for a specific type of communication. That I don't think we do enough of. So mm-hmm. the the like high stakes debates where you've got like five or six people, or sometimes just just two, and you're talking for 26, uh, 20, uh, 20 minutes or between twenty minutes or an hour, and then mm-hmm. you know you mm-hmm. you go and you leave. And um, I I mean those are fine. That's good theater. But I would prefer a sort of long form type of thing where you know someone talks you know like a Joe Rogan style for like two or three hours about something, or you have these repeated conversations because then you get a, a deeper understanding of, of these issues. It mm. would be nice if, if people did more of that, but but we just don't. Yeah, and I, I was a little, um, I, was, I was in theory of going to be on that debate as well, um, but the scheduling didn't work out. But also I just like, and I talked to Brittany about this and, and she's going to be on ETV um, hopefully in the near future. Um, you know, I'm a little hesitant for the like, eight person youtube brawl right i i don't mm-hmm. i i get it for engagement purposes right you're bringing in eight people's audiences in this kind of way um but i really would much prefer like two people at most having a conversation with like a, with like a moderator and like maybe four people if you really need like two people on each side um but beyond that it just feels like it becomes sort of fairly impractical to construct any kind of coherent narrative because you just don't have the time um much less sort of responding to everything that every other person on the other side says in between the times that you speak uh yeah i i I agree with that and 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 thanks Mm -hmm. for uh uh making me question my uh participation in this (laughs) this thing coming up (laughs) but anyway i'm just applying your own (laughs) yeah here to problematize um (laughs) But wait, but before before moving on, I, I, I these these conversations. I mean, you write about it. I mean, these, these mm-hmm. are you can't have eight people or having these conversations or have it for a short amount of time because these are actually really complex things that right. require a lot of. Com- these, this isn't really so. It's politics, which you can sort of boil down to bullet points, but it's also some deep social issues and academic issues as well, and it, it requires a lot more time than, than we put into it. And I don't mm-hmm. think people often realize it. Uh, but anyway. Yeah, and, and there's a there's sort of a related concern here um, to what you're suggesting that I am sympathetic to. And this is, again, ties in the moral panic conspiracism stuff. There's, a, I think, a common mistake when it comes to conspiratorial thinking that people pay too much attention to the content of conspiracy theories. It's not to say that the content doesn't matter at all. The content does matter but if you just chase the content down you know those steel beams if you just chase them down that rabbit hole forever it's not necessarily going to solve the problem that you need to be aware of how conspiratorial thinking what you were describing at the beginning about like there's somebody who's doing this thing and it's out to get you um how, how that as a general mindset 
does more harm than any like necessarily believing any one particular kind of conspiracy though like maybe any vax would become close in terms of harmful content or something you know what i mean Mm -hmm. yeah 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 you're i'm actually uh interested and well you know uh, you're interviewing me but uh, (laughs) not the other way around (laughs) but i'm I'm actually interested in in how you 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 understand moral panics because uh, i Mm -hmm. don't I don't uh, necessarily talk about this in terms of, of conspiracy theory. I'm mm-hmm. almost thinking about it in terms of social movements. So you you have the you have the panic. You got the group that's causing the panic. So now you come up with some policy to then deal with that panic. Mm-hmm. But I never thought of it in terms of. I mean, you're right. I mean, you can think of it certainly as a conspiracy theory. But I just it just never it just never occurred to me that 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 would go with moral panics. Yeah, and it may not be true for necessarily for every moral panic. You might have a, a kind of moral panic that doesn't focus on having a perpetrator of the harm or something. But I do think pretty much always the case, especially with right-wing moral panics since um let's say since since the end of slavery, right? But but heavily um you know, in you know, um accelerated post-civil rights era um they are fundamentally about who it is that is destroying the traditional model of good life right like that they're Mm -hmm. they're fundamentally connected to a conservative worldview that says there was there is the possibility of a just world if you do the right ethical things but that's not happening because there's a secret cabal of let's just say Jews who are stopping it. Right. And they're stopping it usually by sending out their pawns of other races to attack white people. Right. That's basically the grand conspiratorial arc of all the moral panics from like the sixties onward. Um, Hmm. They just take different names and yeah. So like, I think it's important to understand that um, because I think it's very easy to get sucked into these things by first believing, well, there's this kind of group of woke academics who are being a little extreme or something, and that can, you know, land you into sovereign nations territory, as James Lindsay has learned, right? So, <laughs> you know, I think it's important to understand the conspiracism spiral as being part of the psychological mechanism behind moral panics. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does. Mm-hmm. So I want to mention another thing that I think is of important concern here. We've been kind of talking about these different approaches. I personally, and I'm curious to hear if you disagree, I think that for the most part, we're doing a ton of vibing when it comes to what works and what doesn't around these issues. I think we have very scant evidence around, you know, like I'm, I'm familiar with the conspiracism studies side of things. I haven't seen a lot of work on what works and what doesn't around moral panics, but like the information about what works and what doesn't around you know, like debunking and, and um, counterbalancing conspiratorial thinking is very bleak and non-committal. I would say, like those are the the ways that I understand, like the, the extent of our our approaches to these issues. Do you feel like at the end of the day we don't have a lot of evidence about how this works, or do you feel like your your approach is backed by something sort of empirical in particular? I haven't um, read any research about how to combat moral panics. We're starting mm-hmm. to to focus a lot on disinformation, which is very similar. And so we're coming up with, mm-hmm. I say we, uh, social scientists, are coming up with uh, ways of um, presenting more disconfirming evidence to people in social in uh, social media spaces. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's a little different than moral panics. So I think with with moral panics, there is a a, a history of people. So this is me coming at it from a criminological sociological point of view. So let's say a a moral panic currently is sex trafficking mm-hmm. where um uh you know people may have in, in their minds that you know there are a lot of men in white vans who are scooping up young women and taking them off into basements and mm-hmm. and and so it is the case that sex trafficking happens but it is blown completely out of proportion mm-hmm. and you have moral entrepreneurs which, which has a negative context, but it doesn't have to be, who are saying, look, I, I want to deal with this issue. So, you know, give me money. I'm starting this organization. And so that's what has happened. <clears throat> so we have, there's a, there's a lot of money going into combating sex trafficking, even though it's really not as prevalent as human trafficking mm-hmm. uh, or, or labor trafficking, excuse me. 
So there are two sides of that, sex trafficking and labor, which falls under the big umbrella of human trafficking. I say all that because, okay, once you, you have these groups who, who realize that this is an, an outsized response to an issue and it may be harming people or putting resources in areas that we don't want it, they can mm-hmm. then start mm-hmm. to generate their own narrative about these issues. So, so sex workers have a problem with this sex trafficking panic because it, again, right. uh, moral, moral panics to me always lead to some kind of policy changes. So mm-hmm. um, we, we had this, uh, this FOSTA-SESTA bill passed, which removed uh, sex ads from websites under the assumption that, wow, there's so much sex trafficking going on and this is a, a big issue, so we, we have to do something to stop it. Well, you remove those ads from um, websites, mm-hmm. and so now mm-hmm. sex workers find themselves having to find more dangerous ways of of meeting clients because they can't they can't post on a site like a Craigslist or I forgot the name of right. the other site that went down. Okay, so so what you have then is you have groups that are combating the moral panic by sort of producing their own understanding. Um, it's a political thing. They're they're trying to generate some some knowledge about sex trafficking and sex work and and trying to get the public to understand that, you know, uh, mm-hmm. what you thought was going on with sex trafficking is not really going on. So um, I think that, you know, that's something that probably has happened throughout throughout history where people have combated, you know, wrong perceptions by creating their own. Wow, that actually goes back to how I was thinking about the, the uh, debate. I didn't realize it. But mm-hmm. uh, sex workers are creating their own narrative about uh, mm-hmm. sex trafficking and trying so, to propagate that to the public. So, Yeah, I think all of that is accurate. So you can look at like the CRT, you know, moral panic and understand that behind it is the traditional conservative goal to attack public schools and promote mm-hmm. like alternative charter private you know like voucher whatever right sort of that that ongoing uh project um so i do think it's important to note um the policy connections there i was also you know as we're talking about this i think it's also probably fair to say that you know the moral panic problem is like one um, species of the larger problem of the need to like promote your cause through extremely hyperbolic language, right? That like Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. we are in an information saturated environment and everybody's trying to break through into people's, you know, information spheres. And, and the best way to do so is to like, is not to say, oh, well, we're, we're concerned about, edu- you know, history in schools or something like that. It's to say they're indoctrinating your children to hate themselves for being white, right? Like you have to go all the way up to yeah, 11 yeah, yeah. just to be heard, it seems like. Um, and I'm, I'm curious, if you, A, if you agree with that, and B, do you feel yourself sort of struggling against the pull of these kind of hyperbolic narratives or like, do you feel like you, you know, yourself sometimes get sucked into conveying things in ways that might be hyperbolic that you then have to kind of like pull back from? <laughs> well, first, a, a, yes, I, I agree with you. Um, are, are you saying that I would try to be uh, intentionally provocative? Uh, I mean, I think we all are on the <laughs> spectrum of, of intentional provocation, right? Like, mm-hmm. I think it's yeah, just yeah, yeah. a fact of the matter that, like, that is part of the game. So I think it'd be silly to be like, no one should ever provoke in any, like, dunking, uh, you know, as I just previously discussed in the show, like, I think dunking is an important part of the ecosystem. <laughs> um, but, I mean, I do think that, you know, sometimes I've seen you, um, sometimes even in a like anti woke leaning kind of way, sort of put out statements that I think are uh, stronger than you mean them to be, right? For the sake of, I mean, like, and like maybe you believe them and then get the pushback and, and feel pushed to moderate on that. But like, I guess for example, like you had a a dust up a little while ago about spanking, right? Um, and maybe yeah, we yeah. can we can maybe we can talk about that as a specific issue as well. But like, it it seemed to me initially that like your original response to it was a little bit of a like, here's maybe where like the lefties or the woke go too far or something. And it's in these kind of uniform, absolute, you know, claims against spanking. Well, um, so I take my role as a public facing intellectual uh, seriously. Uh So I do try to uh, present things in ways that make people think, but I try to maintain some integrity. I'm not going to just make Mm -hmm. up something. So, so the things that I say, I do actually uh, uh, believe. 
So like with that uh, spanking thing, and, and then I'll loop this back to uh, moral moral panics, I, I think, because sure. you, you mentioned uh, uh, you mentioned Kathy earlier. She's emblematic of this. Mm-hmm. So um, <clears throat> yeah, with that spanking thing, um, no, no, I, I, I believe that, yeah, uh, we are, this idea of never, never spank, or I forgot what the tagline is, is just counterproductive. And I believe mm-hmm. that 100%. Um, and I think it's just, quite frankly, I think it's stupid. I was home with my, before we got, before we started recording, I was telling you about being with my, um, uh, sister and niece and she gave me this cold that I have here. And my sister, uh, popped my niece on the leg because she's two and she's trying to get this person to understand that you can't do that. But in no way is that abuse. I mean, it's just a, it's just a dumb idea that somehow doing that one or one or two times is going to lead to being a serial killer. It's just stupid. It's a, it's just a, an over-exaggeration of something that's really important that we need to talk about. So you end up um, demonizing good parents uh, or make them feel bad. Uh, and there's no there's no evidence that, that uh, no, no, there is evidence that uh, physical abuse leads to problems. But that's different than saying that you can never touch a child. You know, it's just stupid. So anyway. Uh, <laughs> do you feel like it's there's evidence that it's effective? That like, or do you just think that like stigmatizing it is not, good even if it isn't effective like i I guess i'm very confused about this particular example of like because it's almost sort of like you're saying there's a moral panic around spanking right right like you're saying that like people are <laughs> too worried about people you know kids getting swatted a couple of times or something like that and i mean like my understanding i'm not an expert in this area is that like the evidence is pretty overwhelming that you know, it doesn't turn you into a serial killer necessarily, but it does increase various kinds of um, negative reactions, a likelihood towards aggression as a response to um, adverse circumstances, things like that, that like, there's pretty good reason to think that it's potentially harmful. And there's no benefit that I've seen. Do you think that like, there is a substantial benefit that counteracts that? Or do you just think that like, the harms of a very small hit or something like that aren't aren't worth discussing. I guess I'm trying to understand. Okay, so uh, going back to the example I gave of of my sister, mm-hmm. uh, well, uh, her daughter then realized that okay, maybe I shouldn't do that particular thing, and so I I won't do it. So there is a a small benefit. I, I just don't think that we should make spanking some kind of primary strategy for for teaching and learning and deterrence. No, I don't think so. And I think you're right. The evidence is pretty strong in that favor. It's just that you extend that uh, general relationship to everything. It's just too totalizing, right? I mean, it's just, it's just <laughs> it, it, saying never is, is almost always wrong. <laughs> so, so that, that's kind of where I, I was, I was heading with that. And then, yeah, you then get to stigmatize people, parents for that. Yeah. And so this, this part of this just just picks at me as an ethicist, because I think, you know, I as a, as a realist, I believe that there are objective ethical truths. And I think some of them are, are generally, you know, absolute in the sense that there are no circumstances in which they are false. And I think there's no circumstance, it seems to me, that I've ever seen in which spanking becomes moral, I guess. And, you know, like we talked on your show a little bit about these kind of disagreements, some, but like, even what you're describing seems weird within the way that you're describing in the sense that if, you know, if spanking is something that might be essential for preventing children from making really bad mistakes, right? Let's say there's something really severe that we don't want them, like they'll die if they do X, but if we spank them, they won't die, right? Like maybe you can make a consequentialist case there that we have to use that mechanism, especially if you could show that like no other mechanism exists to prevent them from doing the thing. But what you're describing is like not that very severe reinforcement to prevent severe harm, but rather a very mild reinforcement to prevent a, a relatively mild harm, right? Which does seem to be the kind of making this a commonplace solution for commonplace problems that you were just saying is not what you want to encourage. So I guess I'm I'm confused there about how your sister would be a good example of, of this kind of using this maybe in some extreme circumstances. I I think that 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 type of thing happens quite often in homes, especially if, if you have more uh, more than one child that, that the parent has to monitor and they don't have help. And so 
and so that you may make they may make a cost benefit analysis and say like this is probably the the right thing to do i can't really reason with this child and i can't move the thing so let's say a hot plate or something you're in some home and there's a hot plate there and so i i mm-hmm. need to i need to make sure that this child knows not to pull this or touch this hot plate or pull it down or something and she's not at an age yet where I can reason with her and I can't move it. I mean, there, there are so many instances where it might be that in that particular situation, some type of negative reinforcement that is physical will prevent that child from that behavior. I actually don't see this as a moral, immoral thing at all. I see it as one of uh, practicality. Um, I, I, I those two I things are connected to me. So it's, I, I'm not, I, I don't, I don't let me, know. let me ask you a question. Let me ask you this. Suppose, suppose I have evidence that, mm-hmm. um, social, this, this conversation is moving in a different direction. So suppose I have, I have evidence that um, social isolation mm-hmm. is bad for people. It, it has negative consequences. Sure. And then I, I then say that means that you should never, never do a timeout with your kids because you're isolating them. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> this is that's ridiculous, and this is right. the same. That's the same thing that I'm seeing here with this physical uh, corporal punishment idea. It's just you, you can never you you can't take a general re- cor- correlation and then and say that it applies in all situations for all degrees and all intensities. It just doesn't it doesn't work. I, I guess I think that there's a difference in um, the the likelihood of harm caused by timeout versus spankings or something like that especially if the spankings are frequent um i think there's pretty good evidence that that is more adverse now you know i i guess i'm sympathetic to the idea that um you know people who are in really rough situations make hard choices right and that like spanking could be a hard choice that parents have to make sometimes in certain situations there, I think it's still true that spanking itself is immoral, but I do think um, we might, you know, be more sympathetic, at least less, less wanting to assign moral responsibility or just describe this as, you know, just outright abuse as opposed to, you know, a, a hard choice made out of love or something like that. There, it seems to me that like, I think we could at least agree that we would want to create a world in which, no one is ever in a situation where they have to make that choice though, right? Like we've always want to be able to create a situation in which people can resolve these problems without resorting to spanking. If we agree that the evidence suggests that like spanking carries with it a harm, even in situations where it might prevent you from burning yourself or something like that. Okay. I think, I think you may have supported my argument when you said that um, it's a matter of, degree uh you know you you were talking at the beginning when you when you responded to me you mentioned that uh especially if spanking continues or repeatedly over a long period of time and i think everyone agrees with that that's that's i mean i'm not a parent uh but i imagine that parenting is a complex activity with many iterations of relate of of parent child interactions so i'm saying that you know if if this happens a few times it's it's not the end of the world especially if it has some immediate consequence uh positive consequence is there uh, and, and is so there a good reason to think that like people can only people only do it a couple of times as opposed to it becomes a habit in this absolutely okay. listen uh you you are you are saying that so people are saying I'm not that, a parent, so these, so I'm, I'm <laughs> yeah but, but, but both of us are not but 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 I think we can kind of we we were kids so I mean we we've got that in our in our favor we had that experience mm-hmm, mm-hmm. so um but I think that you there's no so right now we we have a lot of problems with kid with with adults with addiction and um, a lot of mental mm-hmm. health issues okay I think most people are most um, health professionals are linking that not to spanking but to emotional neglect or some other type of trauma that's not necessarily related to, of course it's a part of it, but it's not necessarily related to parents spanking their kids. Okay. Well, I mean, we're not, we're not running out and and talking about emotional neglect and trauma. We should do that. You know, instead of focusing on this thing that I think what we've done is conflate morality with practicality. This is not a moral issue. 
I mean, I, I think it I think is necessarily something that mm-hmm. you know I would prefer if uh, parenting uh, did not need to have any type of negative consequences to children. But um, I don't think that's possible. I think children need positive and negative reinforcement. And so, um, you know, spanking would be a part of that. Oh, one Uh last thing. One last thing. You were saying that, um, which I agree, is that the the links to social isolation, um, social isolation linking to some negative consequence is not as strong as spanking to some negative consequence. And I think that's that's true. But again, it's a matter of degree. Suppose a parent says, okay, I'm going to always um, punish or teach my kid through social isolation. So every time the kid does something wrong, okay, go to your room and don't don't leave uh, for the rest of the night or stay in there for two days. I'll bring you food. I mean, these are some uh, extreme examples. Right. Okay, well, <laughs> that's a problem, isn't it? I mean that that's just as bad as the the parent who spanks the child uh on the bum uh you know once or twice a month or something for doing something wrong. So I guess I I agree that you can be extreme and abusive with a variety of kinds of behavior. I I guess what what I experience here is this sort of like I was saying this sort of shift from a, what it seemed like a more hyperbolic in the sense of you know, like spanking is good, actually, kind of view to more like, you know, there are some people who really want to like be critical of parents. And this is a way that they this is a thing that they use to jump all over parents, often parents who are like struggling and are resorting to this behavior because they don't know better or something like that, which I am sympathetic to. But I think, you know, in my experience, especially growing up in the South, like spanking was a widespread problem and it wasn't like a solution that was being used productively and helpfully. It was like a thing that was abusive that like, you know, people used generally pretty fairly abusively, I think, and could have been, you know, like most situations I think could be resolved without resorting. I'm not going to say necessarily all, but I think the vast majority. So I guess in the sense of, is there a moral panic around spanking by woke lefties or something like that. I, I do ultimately think the answer is probably not. Like, I think it's comparable to other kinds of wokeness where it is good that we have made progress as a culture around spanking. Um, even if there are people who sometimes are sort of using it for excessive dunking purposes. Does that make sense? Yeah. You know, and the thing about moral, moral panics, uh, I actually, I, I wasn't, conceptualizing uh, spanking and the woke response to spanking as a moral panic, but I guess it could fit. And so I think uh, sometimes we, I think maybe all the time, we see moral panics as a a negative thing, but they don't have to be. So uh, to the extent, and I think you and I both agree, that um, corporal punishment is is something that we should do less of, or in your case, never, then fine, we should support the... uh, the moral panic, even if it's not necessarily grounded entirely in in uh, you, so you uh, mean like a noble lie kind of approach to moral panics. I'm I'm very skeptical of suggesting that as ever. Like I, I don't know if you're being a little tongue in cheek here, but no, like, I, no, because it's, it's politics. Yes, it's politics. I think down that road lies sovereign nations, and I don't want to live there. So well, see, I'm, you're taking the cons- <laughs> you're taking the conspiracy theory. Angle on this, but I'm I'm taking the more where, you know where it goes. You, you know, know who's you know who wants sausage. to stop you from spanking the globalists. That's who <laughs> wants to stop you from spanking. Look, I think, oh, and you may say I'm being uh, intentionally uh, provocative again, but I'm not. I'm I'm thinking that BLM, <laughs> Just try BLM, to get you while you're here. <laughs> yeah, I think that's what's going to happen. But the the B the, the BLM stuff was in some sense a bit of a moral panic, in that it was an exaggerated. Uh-huh. Uh, response to some real issues, meaning so okay, yeah, I, 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 yeah, go ahead. Yeah, meaning that sure, there is a a disproportionate uh, black people are absorbing the disproportionate amount of violence from police. That's that's the way I like to describe it, because because police are are, are violent, but it's disproportionately in black and brown communities, and so mm-hmm. and so I don't like that, and so I and also there's some evidence to suggest that uh, you know black people. Well, well, they haven't suggested in general that they're experiencing more violence. There's some concern about whether or some disagreement about whether black people are being shot and killed more than white people 
Right. But in any case, the messy reality on the ground is different than the BLM message. But I'm okay with the BLM message because I want to deal with that messy reality on the ground. So I don't know if you would call that a noble lie or not, but I see it as politics. Yeah. I, I guess I, I would. And I guess I think I don't I don't like that approach because I think it opens you up for easy pushback. Right. Like so, for example, this, you know, like I do think there probably is and there's no way to say this in a way that doesn't sound terrible. But like if you're talking pure frequency, the disproportionate response to specifically gun deaths by police officers, right? Mm -hmm. uh, which is not to say that it's not an important issue, right? It's just to say that, like, it, it is it, it's similar in the way I, I often compare it to, like, the emphasis on um, mass mass shootings as opposed to sort of day-to-day -day gun violence, right? That, like, the, the overemphasis on things like school shootings as the the kind of gun violence that is the most prevalent or the most important or something like that. So mm -hmm. I'm sympathetic to that, but I think, you know, I take a, a, an approach where I guess it's a prevent defense kind of approach where I'm like, just say what is true as much as possible. And like, don't throw out noble lies. Don't exaggerate things because, you know, then you're you're doing what they're going to do and everyone will be viewed the exact same way. And maybe that's going to happen anyway. But like, I, I think that to me seems like worse than even like doing the thing you were saying earlier of just like trying to counteract their misinformation all the time. Does that well, make sense? I, yes, it does. Um, I'm, I, I was using your your uh, nomenclature, I guess, mm -hmm. of noble lie. But I don't think it's so. Okay, is this a lie if I say that black and brown communities absorb the disproportionate amount of violence? From no, police? I think that's a, that's a that's a very true claim. Okay, so um, that's that's not, and so that that in itself is uh, would be a, a message of BLM. So it's not mm -hmm. a lie. It's just that and that's you, not the lie part. The part would be like, you know, there's a genocide of black men well yes that that like, would be or, like, you know, like shooting by you know what i mean like right the more sort of moral panicky version of that kind of claim that's right that's right so in a in a in a pure you know social movement politics sense i support that general message i, I was using lie but i mean i support that general message even though i know because i want that to to to, that to stop. You know, mm -hmm. I, I, I don't like the fact that we have these this hyper militarized police force, and so I'm willing to support the general message, even though I know on the ground things are a lot a lot more messy uh, than what the message uh, suggests. I, I just think mm -hmm. that's politics, actually. I, I don't know if it's a lie or not. I think it depends on how you do it. I mean, I think there, there, you're mm -hmm. right. There's some amount of like generalizing that has to be done, but there are ways that you can do it that sort of more or less. Uh, lean towards these kind of moral panic uh, ways of talking about things. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And I just, I, you know, to me, the reason I'm so hesitant to go down that road at all is because I do think it is a spiral and that like once you start in that direction, you have to keep upping the ante and, and you end up, you know, blaming the Jews. I, like that's just the way it ends up for everybody, it seems like. <laughs> um, but before we run out of time here, we're running a little short and there was one other video that I, it's not exactly related to this, though I think it is a bit of a, like it's connected to the kind of culture warry stuff and maybe is about how we are pressured to react to various things. But you did a video about the lady who did the Native American dance while she was teaching about math. Um, and mm -hmm. I, I want to try to better understand what your criticism was there because it was the video was framed it seems like as a mistake to the way that people thought about it um where you were saying that like what she was doing wasn't bigotry it was just sort of being ignorant um and i guess i, I found that you know confusing because i don't i don't think that anyone thinks that that lady hates native americans or that mm -hmm. she was like trying to do an overt racism or something like that right like it just seems that like consequentially what she did was something fairly racist um which i think you agreed with in in the video so like how do you understand your concern about the takes around that particular issue and sort of how they relate to these culture war conflicts? Well, you know, I, I think, so I, I tend to be, I need context. And I, mm -hmm. and I think in that video, I was, I was arguing that there are some things that may have been happening in that scene before 
uh, and after that we don't know about. And so to come to some conclusion that this woman, you know, was trying to be racist. So it's one thing to to have racist actions. It's another to the intent is to be racist, to somehow, you know, stereotype a bunch of people and, and, and say that these people are inferior or something in some way. I, I don't think that that woman was doing that at all. I think it was it was just ignorance. Uh, she thought this was a way to um, teach this uh, was a geometry lesson, I believe. Right. And and so, yeah, I mean, I, I was making the point that, OK, suppose so human interaction is, is not so simple as any type of soundbite. Right. You've got uh-huh. things that happen before that impact what's happened during. You've got social relationships that that will determine how people interact and what they think is acceptable or not. And so people often don't pay attention to these things, uh, which I, I think is is the justification for that. Like if you don't do ethnographic research or don't read about it or anything, then you don't realize the importance of these sort of micro interactions for, uh, or for um, uh, right for behavior. So anyway, having said that, I don't know. I mean, has she been? Uh, was she? sort of uh, kind or not kind to Native American students beforehand? Has she been given the go-ahead by administrators? Like, all these things matter. Really. I guess I I think they don't. And I guess, like, this is interesting to me because I think on the sort of anti-woke side of things, you often see these, like, intent matters arguments. And I do think intent can matter in ethical, you know, in ethical judgments and in these kinds of discourse issues. So, like, you know, did Tucker Carlson intend to be a white supremacist when he used this particular dog whistle about, um, you know, uh, white genocide? Yes. Right. Like, I think, And I think we can make that argument because we can argue that we know his intent and his intent matters in that context. Here, though, like, I don't think the intent matters because no one is claiming this lady was intent. I mean, I, 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 maybe if I'm wrong, maybe you saw somebody mm-hmm. who was like saying this woman is trying to be racist. I don't think anybody was saying that. I think everyone was saying this person is very ignorant and tone deaf and should not be doing this activity. And there's like no context that would make that false, right? Like her administrator saying she should do it is not changing that reality. It just includes their culpability or something, right? So I, I guess I feel like this is a weird situation in which to apply the intent matters kind of pushback because it just really doesn't here. Like she's not, no one's debating whether or not she was trying to do an overt racism. We're just saying, don't do the dance anymore. Like don't do that thing. That's not, that's not what I saw. Well, it, it, really? So yeah, we really, so I like to separate intent, <laughs> intent and, and, uh, and, uh, and action. And so what, what, or effect, I guess. And so with the effect, no, it doesn't matter her intent, right? It, it has the effect of being racist and so you have to deal with that on its own. Intent matters uh-huh. with how you deal with the person perpetrating whatever it is. And so in this case, people were arguing for her dismissal. They weren't saying just stop. They were saying this is a racist person and uh, she needs to be fired. And I'm saying, no, 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 no. If she has these wonderful relationships with her students, if they like her, if she's a good teacher, okay. then then no. I mean, you just tell her, stop, you know, <laughs> you know, don't do this. This is not the way we want to be in America and move on. So, okay. So, I mean, I, I agree with you in the like separate question of would it be disproportionate for her to be fired for doing this? Like that seems disproportionate to me. And like, as an administrator, I would say, just don't ever do that again. Um, I think that's the correct approach there. And like, you know, I guess I I wonder if the people who were calling her racist, right, were they calling her racist in the sense of she did a racist thing as opposed to she really, really, really hates Native Americans, which I don't, like, I feel like the vast majority of reactions to that were not, she really genuinely must hate Native Americans and were like, ooh, this is very cringe, don't do this. Okay, well, you know, we may have seen uh, uh, the thing. Right, and that that is a challenge in these culture war issues, right, where... Mm -hmm people are reacting to their own information spheres and we, you know, our information spheres overlap, but are, you know, have different worlds to them. So like people often, you know, will give me weird pushback about like associating things with anti-Semitism, And I'll just be like, you just, you just don't see the worlds that I see, or you'd understand why this is the, one of the unifying themes of these conspiratorial narratives. So I I get that. I get that. I would make that same claim. Yeah, no, absolutely. I, I, I would say that you like this conversation has been interesting in that I, I noticed that you did sort of uh, 
make this sort of uh, ultimate, you know, explanation of uh, of Jewish conspiracy theory, and I would have never saw that. Oh I mean, yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. I, we um, we call it the reverse Godwin, right? It's on a long enough timeline. <laughs> uh, all conspiracism trends towards the Jews. It's I see. Just mm-hmm. a fundamental, and, and like you see it all over the place in conspiratorial studies. So, um, I notice we're just running out of time here. Do you want to? I like to try to wrap up. If there's any sort of additional resources that you feel like have been helpful for you for like dealing with these moral panic kinds of issues that you feel like might might be valuable to our our soldiers out there in the culture war trenches uh gosh i wish i had some i, I don't i don't really have any uh anything that i've read that i could suggest to your audience okay fair enough mm-hmm. well, people should look forward to your upcoming debate at least and mm-hmm. uh see how that how that goes in terms of trying to implement these approaches um now this has been fun but sadly of course i have to finish by torturing you okay <laughs> so this is the enlightening round part two because you have survived the first level enlightenment comes from within so this is enlightening round trolley boogaloo um i'm going to give you a series of options okay um and, and what, I, what i want you to tell me is when is it morally permissible to pull the lever okay you're familiar okay. with the classic trolley problem, right? Yes. Okay. So, uh, are you ready? Let's do it. Okay. So, is it morally permissible to pull the lever to save five people by killing one? No. Okay. What about to save a billion people by killing one? <laughs> and I'm I'm the one pulling the lever, right? Yes, you were the one pulling the lever. But let me, let me say... <sighs> The question here is only is it morally permissible, not do I psychologically think that I would be able to pull the lever? Oh, I see. Oh, that's different. Okay, so um, yeah. I, I'll stick with my first answer, but here I would pull the lever. Okay, so you think okay. it's morally permissible to do so. Um, okay. What about saving yourself by killing one? <laughs> uh, well, <laughs> you got to that uh, yes pretty fast, huh? And then felt bad about it, didn't you? <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I, I want, I want to live. I, you know, I have so much to to do I in want life. To and live. Yes. Yep. Um, what about saving yourself by killing one million people? No, I wouldn't do that. Okay, so somewhere between one and a million. Fair enough. <laughs> yeah. Um, what about saving five by pushing the person responsible for them being on the tracks onto the tracks? No, I don't think so. No, not excessive, no. not permissible. What about killing your favorite artist to save their complete body of work? <laughs> no. <laughs> no, okay. Um, what about saving five, but you have to go through a teleporter before you pull the lever? What, and, and there may be some... Uh... Chance that I don't make it? Is that the... Uh... You know, it's a teleporter. It's either, it's a murder box for some people. <laughs> uh, I'll, yeah, I'll, I'll go. I'll get in the teleporter. I, I think okay. I'll survive. Yeah. Okay, great. Um, what about saving a 10-year-old by killing an 80-year-old? No. Okay. What about saving a world historic person by killing a non-world historic person? No. Okay. What about saving your favorite non-human animal by killing one human? No. Okay. What about saving the Great Barrier Reef by killing one human? No. (laughs) What about saving a sentient AI by killing one human? No. Okay. You have survived. (laughs) How do you feel? Well, yeah, I feel I feel like I don't want to kill people, so I don't. Okay. Uh... <laughs> Do you feel like it would have been different for you if it had been about letting people die rather than killing them? Maybe, maybe. So it's all, it's, yeah. it's all about that that killing uh, kill versus uh, let die distinction for you. I guess so. I mean, anytime you're asking me like uh, just uh-huh. like one uh, like a uh, one versus one, I mean, I, I'm mm-hmm. always in favor of not killing. I mean, okay. So yeah. That is the tricky part with the the round two is there are like slight, lots of different reasons that people could have different um, reactions to these kinds of questions, I think. Mm-hmm. Okay, Rod. Well, this has been fun. Thanks for coming on and chatting about approaches to moral panics here some. Do you want to let folks know where they can find your info, your materials one more time, your Twitter handle, that sort of thing? 
Sure. Well, everything's at my website, RoderickGraham.com, but then you can also, I'm most often on Twitter, and my handle is at RoderickGraham. Okay, great. Thanks so much. All right. Thanks, man. As a human, I was ill-equipped to thank you, but as myself, you have my everlasting gratitude. Thanks again to our listeners and patrons who make the show possible. Thanks to our top-tier patrons, our Archon-level patrons, Jesse Rabinowitz and Brenda Goodman, Chad T, Create Voting Districts in Covina, California, Fight for Democracy and End the Theocracy, Fix the Vote, Dude, I'd like to thank Aaron for being a friend in my head, and Lawrence Shielding, and all the thanks to our Archduke-level patrons, Big Easy Blasphemy, Creepy Little Void Eyes, and Dave Maslich. If you'd like to support the show, Please check out my other show, Philosophers in Space. And while you're at it, check out our wonderful editor's show, Film Live Musicals. Leave them all a five-star rating and a review on your podcast app. You can also follow me on Twitter at ETVPod. And if you notice a small void growing within you, consider supporting us financially at patreon.com slash embrace the void. Just $4 a month gets you early access to episodes and our bonus ETV reading group content. Most of all, You are the void, and the void is you.